We started out this year in a three-part series called The Gospel of Intimacy because what we were discovering is that what, what Jesus wants, what the Father wanted and why He sent Jesus is so that He could release the Holy Spirit to us and the Holy Spirit could bring us to a place of real intimacy with God. What does intimacy mean? It's a closeness, a nearness to God where God's presence is a part of our daily life. Where we talk to God and we hear from God on a regular basis. We have relationship with God. Where it's back and forth. Where we spend time with God. It's the kind of relationship that anybody would want. If someone says that they love you and they never spend any time with you, how are you going to feel about that? You know, if I tell my wife, oh honey, I love you. In fact, I run into this sometimes. I love you, honey, I love you, and then I'm not around. After a while, that doesn't cut it. You know, the words, the words don't cut it. It's the action that cuts it. You know, it's the action where we actually make a commitment to spend time with the Lord. And it's in those times of intimacy that God will respond and give us a deeper revelation of His love for us. And so that's how the relationship is formed. It was really interesting. My wife today, um, she said she was feeling really lonely. Like, <laughs> this is just an incredible story. Um, she was feeling really lonely. Like, even though there were a lot of people around, her kids and I was around, and there's people in and out of the house, she was feeling really lonely. And she said, "I'm overwhelmed with this feeling that I'm just here, that people just want me around so that I can help them, like take care of them, feed them, and..." change their diapers, and maybe you guys have heard this for those of you that have been married. I feel like that's why people want me around. And I had nothing to say to her. I'm like, God, you know, would you give me something here? Some words of encouragement maybe? Or, you know, a prayer I could pray over my wife? And uh, I did pray over my wife, but I don't know if, you know, if it was like, (laughs) I don't know. I, I did pray over her. And about an hour later, she came back to me and she said, you know what? I think the Lord's trying to show me how He feels about me and the way that I go to Him. That I'm around Him a lot, but when I go, I'm just going there to get stuff from Him. Yeah, man. And she was just weeping. She's like, I feel like He's showing me how He feels. And I received it. I was like, wow. See, only Jesus can do that. Only He can show you how He feels and show you what our, what, what our wrong heart posture is towards Him. And so, um, that's the kind of intimacy that He wants with us, though. It's the kind where He can speak to us in that way by revelation, you know? That we'd never... I mean, you could go to seminary and not get that. You, know, you could go to four years of seminary and not have that kind of revelation of God's heart for intimacy. So I thought that was pretty cool. That happened today. Yeah, pretty nice, huh? Um, so we're learning in this intimacy that the, the, one of the main ingredients for intimacy with God is that we spend time with Him. And that, and we're going to spend after we, in, going into next month, we're going to be spending most of our time talking about what that looks like. What does it look like? And we're going to have you guys share. So be ready to kind of get up and share. I may be... Um, I'll do it this way. I'll do it like we do with the leadership stuff. Um, if any of you feels led to share how you spend your time with God and just give a testimony and say, you know, sometimes it looks like this, and then just share how your time with God is. And I think through testimonies, 
of our individual experiences, it'll help maybe guys who have not maybe walked with the Lord as long or are trying to figure out how does intimacy with God look. You know what I mean? We, you know, we, we understand physical people and they're in the room and you focus on them and you know, I'm spending time with Shad and okay, Shad, let's get intimate, man, in a godly way. You know, um, you know, I, we get we get that, but we, it's a little bit harder for us to wrap our brains around how do we have intimacy with God. And the truth is, we can have even deeper intimacy with God than we can have with another human being. The truth is that our our real intimacy with other people comes through our relationship with God. My intimacy with my wife comes is because I'm getting closer to the Lord, and so is she. It's by the Holy Spirit that that this group, these brothers got closer together. Did you those of you who are up at Operation Consecration, could you feel the Lord knit us together up at Operation Consecration? No. I mean, only the Holy Spirit can do that. We could just, you know, we could go out and, you know, spend a weekend together camping, not focused on God and, and it wouldn't the same thing wouldn't happen. But because Christ was the center of that weekend, it had the effect of knitting us together in a real way. Only the Spirit can do that. Okay, so real intimacy with God is connected to intimacy with other people. They're they're interwoven. Um, spending time with God. So we'll share stories about how we spend time with God, and then we'll do some teaching about worship and fasting and prayer and being in the Word and some of those other disciplines of what that looks like when we go into our our time alone with God. The other things that the Lord is showing us affect our ability to experience intimacy with Him. The first one is sin. Personal sin, generational sin, hurts in our life, traumas that have happened in our life, things that will separate us where we have ungodly anxieties and fears, wrong ideas, ungodly beliefs about who God is. All those things can get in the way of us having intimacy with God and we... we, lump those all together in a category called sin. Hopefully we understand that we we have been called to live a lifestyle of holiness. It's not supposed to be hypothetical holiness where we say, the blood of Jesus covers me and I just do whatever I want to do. No, that is not the gospel. In Peter it says, those, uh, it says, those who, um, it would be better if we didn't know the way of righteousness, meaning it would be better if we didn't know the gospel, than to know the gospel and ignore the command to live a holy life. Which is kind of a strong statement. It would be better if you didn't know Jesus than to know Jesus and ignore the whole reason why He came, which was to bring real holiness into our life. That's pretty strong. But I think it's it's these early apostolic leaders understood who they served. They understood His holiness. And again, that's not something to bring us under condemnation or, you know, or to heap shame on ourselves. It's just to understand who our God is. This is who He is. He's holy. And He wants to establish holiness in our lives. So we do that by living a lifestyle of repentance. That's why when we get together and we pray here, you know, we start out by saying, Holy Spirit, show us. Is there anything between us and you right now that you want to deal with? Any business you want to take care of? And living a life of keeping a short list with the Lord. You know, don't go to bed and not check in with God and say, God, are there things in my life that you want me to get right with you before I go to sleep? Why? That's why the scripture says, don't go to bed angry for at least a foothold for the devil. 
You know, if there's sin in our lives, it leaves openings for the enemy to come in and he'll take advantage of them. So don't let, let sin accumulate like plaque. Think about it like brushing your teeth spiritually. You know, you can't go a month without brushing your teeth and think you're not going to have some cavity issues. Don't let cavities form in your spirit. Don't let cavities form in your soul. Live a lifestyle of repentance. Brush your teeth. It needs to be like that for us as, as New Testament believers. Brush your teeth. Okay, Before you go to bed, brush your teeth. Before you go to bed, check with the Lord. God, is there anything that I need to get take care of with you? Then you wake up, guess what? New mercies. So sin is a major area. The second thing that's a major area that the Lord is identifying to us and saying, men of God, if you want to walk in intimacy with me, you need to declare war on worldliness. A lot of these areas are interconnected. We're going to talk about worldliness tonight. The third area is you need to declare war on the enemy. You need to understand that we're in a spiritual battle. And you need to set your face like flint against Satan and his demons. They're real, and they're out to steal, kill, and destroy you. And they're not playing. And they know whether you're serious too. Believe me. They can tell the difference between those that are serious and those that aren't. They can sense it in your resolve, in your spirit, in your confidence. Are you confident in what Christ has done? Do you walk in real authority in the Spirit, or don't you? So, tonight, we are going to be talking about declaring war on worldliness and what that looks like. Go to Revelation chapter 12, brothers. Declare war on worldliness. Why all this language about declaring war? Why all this you know, talk about declaring war and having this posture of combat. Um, and the answer is found here in Revelation 12, verse 7 through 9, Revelation 12. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he is, and his angels were forced out of heaven. The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. That's where he is now. He's here with all his angels. And the scriptures go on to say um, that he's not very happy. I'm doing the Steve Ugin paraphrase now. He's not very happy and he's taking out his vengeance upon, guess who, beloved? The saints. The sons and daughters of God. We were born into a war. We were born into a war. It's been going on since the beginning, and we have a choice as to whether we're going to be fully equipped soldiers with all our gear and the weapons that God has given us for fighting in this battle, or we can say, well, I, you know, and I've talked to Christians who are like this, well, you know, I don't like to think about that stuff, and they kind of go, la, 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 I can't see you or hear you. You know, they know that Satan is real, but they don't want to face it and they don't want to deal with it. Unfortunately, the effect of that is that you become a civilian in a battlefield. And anybody who's studied war throughout history understands that civilians are the ones that get killed. There's way more civilian casualties in combat zones than there are trained soldiers. 
Why? Because civilians don't know how to operate in a combat zone. Civilians don't know better than to get in the foxhole and get down. Civilians don't have Kevlar helmets on. Civilians don't have body armor. Civilians don't have weapons to shoot back with. That's why civilians get killed. We do not want to be civilians. We want to be soldiers, trained and equipped to do battle against a real enemy that, whether we like it or not, is coming. In fact, he's already here. So hopefully we understand this, the reason why we can't just have a casual posture towards worldliness or sin or the devil in our lives. We have to have a warrior posture and a war posture. With that said, you might be saying, well, what is wrong with the world? Or maybe you're not saying that. What is wrong with the world? That we have to declare war on worldliness. Well, I'll tell you one thing that's wrong with the world, and it's in 1 John 5.19. This is what the Word of the Lord says. We know that we are children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. How many know who the evil one is? Satan. I would say that's something that's wrong with the world. (laughs) Satan's in control of it. Satan is the temporary ruler of this world and the one who exercises control of the world around us. I say temporary because the scriptures also tell us that he's already been judged and that he will be cast into the lake of fire. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. What that means is that every world system, if Satan is in control of the world, it means that every world system has been corrupted and influenced by demonic power. Every world system. Government. Media. Education. Religion. Business. Every aspect of culture has been influenced by Satan and his demons seeking to establish systems. They are seeking to establish systems that defile, steal, kill, and destroy any possibility of people hearing and living out the gospel. The very world that we're in is hostile towards the gospel because Satan is in control of it. And so even in the systems that are put in place... Now, there are also godly influences in all those areas as well, and that's where the battle is going on in the systems themselves. There are battles going on in all of those arenas of influence and culture. Um, But we have to understand that Satan has a tremendous amount of influence in the world and, and the world systems. And I think a lot of us take that for granted. So in a lot of ways, even when we're dividing up this battle against sin and worldliness and the enemy... In many ways, they're interwoven. You know, that in fact, the world and, and sin and the enemy are all kind of part of the same problem. They all came from the fall. We know this, um, we know this from the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. And, and I want to have you guys go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 8. This is two-thirds or a third of the way into the temptations. This is uh, Jesus after he was baptized publicly, went into the wilderness, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan over 40 days and 40 nights. One of the temptations, we don't see all of them, but we see a few of them represented in Scripture, and this is one that's 
informative about this, the extent of Satan's influence and control over this world temporarily. He says here, uh, starting in verse 8, Next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, when he says all the kingdoms of the world, do you think that means all the kingdoms? And everything that's inside the kingdoms, their educational systems, their government, their, uh, their business, the marketplace. He's basically saying everything in the world, all the kingdoms of the world. There's nothing left out. This is what Satan says. Can you imagine the audacity? I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Now, the interesting part of this is Jesus doesn't rebuke him and say, this isn't yours to give. He doesn't say, you, you don't have the right to this, these things. You can't offer these to me. These are the Lord's. We also know from Scripture that the earth and everything in it is the Lord's. And so there's this, there's this... So both those things are true. Ultimately, it's God's possession, but right now Satan has temporary custody until Christ comes back. And his response is, none of those things. He says, get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the Scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. So he just all he does is remind him of the ultimate sovereignty of God. That God is going to make that transaction happen, but not through Jesus bowing to Satan, through Jesus bowing to the Lord and submitting to the Lord. That in fact, Jesus is going to inherit everything. <laughs> but it's not through Satan, it's going to be through God and the rightful owner. And not the owner that absconded it. As we look at the world in the way that it is, you know, war, genocide, broken families, child pornography, torture, corruption and immorality. All these things are the fruit. Jesus, remember what Jesus said. Jesus said you would know a tree by its fruit. These things are the fruit of the, the current age and the world that we're living in. They're the fruit of a world that is under the control of Satan. That's why we're seeing these things, because he is in control of the world temporarily. Let's, let's step away from Satan being uh, the ruler and in control over the world and the world systems for a minute and talk about what God's looking for from us. And in order to get some insight into that, we're going to go to the Leviticus 20. Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse 26. In the word of the Lord it says, You must be holy, because I, the Lord, am holy. And listen to this, brothers. I have set you apart from all other people to be my very own. You must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from all other people to be my very own. The Old Testament, we understand, is always a shadow, a reflection, a prophetic picture of what's coming in the New Testament. That's why God set up these pictures and these little clues that, and these threads that are woven from the Old Testament to the New Testament to let us know that it's the same God that authored the Old Testament and New Testament. Even though he used you know, 80 different writers, it's the same Holy Spirit that's weaving this picture together so that those who have been called to God will recognize and understand what he's saying. We see the same language show up in the New Testament when Peter says, you must be holy because I'm holy. He quotes the scripture. We must be holy because God is holy. Okay? And it's the same message we're learning, that God wants us set apart. Set apart means not common, not, not the same as those who are around us. Not the same as the people next to us. 
God wants to reveal, as we talked about earlier, Christ through our lives. And in order for that to happen, in order for that to happen, we need to be different from the world. If we're the same as the world, are, are they going to be able to see Jesus? No. Absolutely not. And that is one of the biggest problems that we're facing as a church right now. Is that the number one obstacle to people coming and receiving the gospel is that we look just like the world. And so the Lord now is calling us to say, stop looking like the world. Stop looking like the world. Because I want to show people who I am through you, Don. And through you, Jason. And through you, Nick. And through you, Shad and Carlos and Dan. I want to show people who I am through you. But if you look like the world, they're not going to see me. Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 5, that He was the light of the world while He was here on earth. Now He wants us to be the light of the world. He wants to shine that light through our lives. And, and both Matthew 5.14 and Philippians 2.15 affirm that point that we're to, now we're the light of the world. Why is it us? Is it because of us? Or is it because of Christ in us and through us? But in order for us to be the light of the world, we've got to look different. Part of being set apart for God is that we need to stop being friends with the world. Stop being friends with the world, and we're going to talk about what that means. We need to stop acting like the world. That's really what it means. You know, if you're a friend of the world, if you're a friend of the world, it means that you you adopt some of the world's ways. You adopt some of the world's practices. You don't mind that the world's around. You don't mind having the world at your house for dinner. You don't mind going out and kind of hanging out with the world. That's what friends do. They hang out together. So if the world is hanging out in your life, it's your friend. If there's pieces of the world that are still part of your life, that means you've, made, you've invited the world in to be friends with you. Our worldliness is a major problem. The worldliness of the church and the worldliness in our own lives is a major problem. Let's go to James chapter 4, and we'll find out what God says about this, being friends with the world. From verse 4 to verse 9. You adulterers. Well, that's a strong start. What do adulterers do? What is adultery? Is he talking about a bunch of people who are sleeping around in their wives? Breaks covenant? Okay, anybody else? Okay, to look upon a woman. Do you think this is a sexual reference here? Idolatry. Idolatry. So if it's in the context of our relationship with God, it's idolatry. What is idolatry? It's the holding up of anything in the position of the Lord. God is supposed to have first place in our life in reality. Again, I want to make this distinction between hypothetically having first place in our life and actually having first place. They're two totally different things. We see a lot in the church that that everybody hypothetically makes Jesus Lord, but when it actually comes down to the actual walking it out and submitting to Him in every single area of our life and saying, wow, I have a Lord, I need to check with the Lord before I do things, we don't do so hot on that one. And so we need to be moving from hypothetical lordship to real real lordship. Yeah. Uh, 1 John 
521 says, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. I mean, that's pretty much the definition of adultery. Absolutely, that's a good one. Anything that might take the place of God in your heart. So, right now, he's addressing, in the book of James, he's addressing believers in the church of Jerusalem. He's addressing people who know Christ. And his words are, you adulterers. In other words, there's things that have taken the place of God in your heart. Don't you realize that, here's that language I want you guys to recognize. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. That's pretty strong. An enemy of God. Now, does that sound like the language of war to you? Enemies? Okay, there's enemies. When you talk about enemies, we're talking about you know them and us. There's a war going on. Right here in the Scripture, they're recognizing there is still a battle going on. Don't you realize? And why is that? Because he knows and recognizes, the Apostle James recognizes, that the one who's behind the world system is Satan. So when he, they use the term the world and Satan interchangeably because one is just a facade. A lot of times in this fellowship we call it the matrix. The matrix of this world that keeps us in deception and bondage is just a cover for the demonic realm. It's where the demonic realm meets physical reality. It manifests in corrupted systems that are designed to keep us separated from God and from keeping other people out of the fullness of the gospel. That's strong language. And when and then when they really want to emphasize the significance of something in the in Hebrew, they'll say it again because they don't have punctuation in the ancient Hebrew. So they'll say it again. They'll say, it's kind of like saying, wake up. What I'm saying is very important. Let it penetrate your heart and burn into it because you don't want to miss this. And this is what he says. He says, I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Has he been clear here? What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit that God has placed within us is filled with envy, but he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires? As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. Here you go. The devil's right in this thing again. You know, they understand. They're not under the illusion that, that the world has some separate identity from the devil and his demons. They understand that it's a corrupted system that the enemy has a tremendous amount of influence over. And so the devil and the world are used as part of the same problem. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Okay, there's talking about that intimacy that we're talking about. Are you seeing how all this stuff is totally part of the same thing? That intimacy, resisting the devil, you know, resisting the world and becoming an enemy of the world and purifying ourselves. Listen to what he says. This is Operation Consecration right here, brothers. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Meaning you have declared the Lordship of Christ and yet you are still hanging on to pieces of the world that you don't want to allow that Lordship to penetrate. Your loyalty is divided. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Brothers, you're a friend of the world if you do the things the world does. 
You're a friend of the world if you do the things that the world does. If you look at your unbelieving neighbors and you find yourself doing the things that they're doing, that would be a yellow flag. We're not supposed to get caught up in some sort of moral relativism where, you know, the Joneses don't know Christ, but they're, you know, but we're better than them, so we're fine. That's not the the way that we measure things. (laughs) We measure things against the plumb line of God's Word. Against the holiness of the Lord, not against the Joneses who don't even know Christ. Or the Joneses who do know Christ and happen to go to your church and you know, are living the, the seeker-friendly gospel. That's not what you base how you're doing on. Or your level of worldliness. It shouldn't be based on the church as you look around you. It should be based on the Word of the Lord. Now we're going to just... We're going to take a look at what what is worldliness then? What is worldliness? Because the trouble that we have with worldliness is it's really tough sometimes to discern where the kingdom of God and worldliness have kind of melded together and where the devil and the world, how do, you know, where have they melded together and how do we sort all this stuff out? And I think what the Lord wants to do is come with His Holy Spirit right now and we pray that in Jesus' name that He'll come and show us the places where worldliness, where there's a real danger of worldliness coming into our understanding of the kingdom of God, where there's been corruption even in the church as a result of worldliness beginning to permeate the church. And what happens to the church when when that occurs? It's not harmless. It has an intention and an effect. You know, by design. That's why one of Satan's favorite places to operate is religion. That's part of the world system. Okay? So there's lots of things that can look a lot even like Christianity, but have got a lot of worldliness and religion in them instead of things that are authentically authored by the Spirit of the Lord. And we're going to hear about some of those things tonight. What is worldliness? Worldliness is being drawn into the deceptions of the world system around us. And there's many. We call it the Matrix here, just for short. Because that's such a powerful metaphor. That movie was such a powerful metaphor of how totally... Mirage the, 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 the world is, the, the natural world, and masking the, the spirit world that's right behind it that's a completely new reality. So it's a great way for us to have a shortcut to describe what we're talking about here, the world system. It's a reality of false promises. It's a reality of counterfeits. And it's a reality of distractions that are designed to keep us from knowing God and telling others about Him. That's its purpose. By redesign. Was that the original design? Absolutely not. But since the world fell into the enemy's hands, it's been redesigned to accomplish that purpose. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, this is what the Word of the Lord says. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you, For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Are you seeing this kind of mutual exclusivity thing? It's basically either or. You have to make a decision. Either you're going with the Father or you're going with the world. Either you're going with God or you're going with Satan. Either you're going with Jesus or you're going with the world. 
There's not like, you, you know, it's not designed to go together. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. The matrix is going away. Our job, brothers, is to go into the matrix and bring out as many people as possible. Okay? That's what our job is. We're here to learn and to get come into intimacy with the Lord, and then we're here to go into the matrix, which is what we're doing on April 25th. We're going to go into the matrix, and we're going to, and we're going to tell people about Jesus and pray that He'll bring Him out of the world. I'm going to read this scripture to you. So what is the world? What is, what's in the world system and where do we have to be on guard against the world permeating into the kingdom of God? Um, the first area is seeking money and things. Money and things. Money and things are the commodities of this world system. They're an invention of the world system. Go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Again, we're going to see this positioning of the kingdom of God and of the things of the world being placed as mutually exclusive. You've got to make a choice, one or the other. And that's why the gospel is a gospel of total surrender. It's not a gospel of you say that Jesus is Lord and then you go on living in the world. That is not the gospel. And you can see that because it permeates absolutely every single part of Scripture. Where the Lord doesn't give us that option. He doesn't say, I'm going to reveal myself to you and just go on living the way you want to live. That's not what He says. He says, no, you're done. If you choose me, you're done. And I'm taking over. And here's the way that it's going to be for your own good. And then He gives us the option to say yes every single day. We have the option to break covenant anytime we want. You just don't want to. Starting in verse 13, it says this, No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Can't do it. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees... Now, remember, these are religious folks. The Pharisees, they knew the law. These were highly religious people who dearly loved their money. Anybody know anybody like that? Heard all this and scoffed at him. (laughs) Then he said to them, You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. That's another really good indicator of worldliness. If the world is holding it up in high esteem, it's not of God. If the world is holding it up in high esteem, it is not of the Lord. That's what the scripture is telling us. That's another, these are just barometric readings that you can take. When you're sniffing out worldliness, that's one thing that should set your flag up. That should set off your discernment. That if this world is holding something in high esteem, eh, 
That's time to think, brothers. Is this of the kingdom or not of the kingdom? This is a test that the Lord is giving us that we can apply to the things of this world. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 7. After all, listen to what the Word says. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. That's a good revelation. We brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. It's supposed to point out to us the frivolity of accumulating stuff. It's basically saying, listen, in the world to come, your stuff won't matter at all. Your money and your stuff doesn't amount to anything. You came into the world without it, you're going to leave the world without it. So don't spend your time trying to build it up. He really nails it in Matthew chapter 16. We're not going to go there. Verse 26, he says, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Again, what God is trying to do to us is He's trying to say, Listen, the weightiness of these issues is very significant. Don't fall into the deception that money and stuff should occupy any amount of your time compared to things that are more important like seeking after God. Shouldn't even be close. Shouldn't even be on the radar. On a scale of one to a million, going after money and stuff is one and going after God is a million. I just use that as, you know, to just show you the distance that should be between them in our in our hearts. So seeking after money and things should be a big red flag to you. Anything that involves seeking after money and things. Now, does that mean money and things are inherently evil? Absolutely not. But I want us, and I feel like the Lord wants us to understand, that these are functions, that their very existence is from a corrupt system. Okay? Their very use and and, and being brought forth into reality is out of a corrupt world system. Okay? So we have to understand that, and even though we actually have money in our checking accounts, that doesn't mean we're evil. It just means that we have to understand what it is. You know, it's a system of purchasing things that we need, food, namely food, clothing, and shelter, or to give to the poor, that we use but we don't get attached to. We have to keep it in proper perspective. Um, Another thing that is supposed to stand out for us as uh, an indicator of worldliness is pride and seeking the praises of men. Pride and seeking the praises of men. When you smell pride and when you smell people who are seeking the praises of men, you're smelling worldliness, a form of worldliness. The world trains us to seek the approval of men. The world system trains us to do that. Our culture trains us to do that, that we're to get approval from our teachers, that we're to get approval from our parents, that we're to get approval from our friends. Ultimately, our friends replace our parents and those in authority as we go through rebellion and the world teaches us rebellion. But that that need in us for approval is very strong and the world system takes advantage of it to drag us with hooks in our noses down wrong trails. Okay? Many of us have made many bad decisions because we're seeking the approval of men or women. One of the two, instead of the Lord. 
Second Samuel 22, verse 28. And you know, you don't have to look at the world very long to see that people are clamoring for status and prestige. Um, that the corporate ladder, it's all about that. Trying to get status and prestige primarily in the eyes of men to fill this need for approval. There's a lot of different things. A lot of people do crazy stuff just to get the approval of men. <clears throat> How disappointing. It says here in, in verse 28, You rescue the humble, you rescue the humble, but your eyes watch the proud and humiliate them. And throughout Scripture we see this pattern that God, and I'll tell you this, that pride is the number, it's in the top three, I don't want to say number one, it's in the top three reasons that people don't come to Christ. Pride. Because they know it all. They've heard it before. They know it all. And if it's coming from another human being, there's a built-in assumption that whoever's talking to you is just a little bit dumber than you are. I'm just That's the way it is in the world. There's this built-in assumption that the people that you're talking to are slightly dumber than you, and so what they say, you automatically... And there's a tremendous amount of skepticism because people have been burned and wounded. And so there's other reasons that they don't come to the Lord, but pride is a huge one. And in ministering to those like the ones we're going to be ministering to on Wall Street, that's going to be a major issue, is pride. So where you see pride, you see worldliness and carnality. That's another yellow flag. We should be on, on, on notice. And even when you see it in the church, to the extent it's in the church, it's, it's an expression of worldliness and just carnal thinking and fleshiness. John 12, chapter 24 says this, No wonder you can't believe, he says. No wonder you can't believe. For you, This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees now. So again, it's in the context of a religious context. It says, no wonder you can't believe, for glad, you gladly honor each other. <laughs> but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. John chapter 12, verse 44. No wonder you can't believe, for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. And so there's this sense that worldly pride and worldly like self you know, I come and I congratulate you and I, you know, I lift you up and exalt you and we exalt each other, but we don't honor and recognize God that that will actually keep us from faith. That God will hide Himself. God hides Himself from the proud. He chooses to hide Himself from the proud. That's why you see so many people coming to faith in Christ out of brokenness. It's incredible. I, you know, the spirit of the Lord. I, I don't. The spirit of the Lord responds very strongly to pride. Very strongly, He will withdraw from pride immediately. And so, this is a very significant issue. So, when we when we see pride and we see people, you know, going after worldly accomplishments, that's another indication of worldliness that we need to be on notice for. The third, um, the third area that's just. Another barometric reading that we can take on whether worldliness is around is seeking worldly wisdom. Seeking worldly wisdom. And there's a lot of it even in the church. There's a lot of worldly wisdom that's being employed within the church. And to the extent that it is being employed within the church, the power and the presence of God is withheld. 
Because God will not share His glory with secular humanism and social sciences. He won't share His glory with the thinking of men and the philosophies of men. And, and we're going to find that out when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Seeking after human or worldly wisdom, brothers, is, a, is just another form of idolatry. It's setting up the minds of men above the mind of God and saying, by our own minds, we can, we can get to a place without needing to seek the counsel of God. We, we even use rationalism. I mean, we even use common sense. Um, we seek secular prophets or experts. I mean, how, have you guys seen, heard talk radio or CNN? I mean, there's constantly secular prophets like up there going, wah, 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 wah. And it doesn't matter if you hear them this week or next week. They're just kind of saying the same stuff. And a lot of it's just gobbledygook. You know, recycling the latest psychobabble or social you know, sciences babble that's come out of the minds of men or worse yet has a demonic origin you know, to explain the things of the kingdom and, and what's really going on. Um, we also take pride in many ways, and this is something that does happen even within the church as well, so we need to be cautious of it, in uh, ungodly intellectualism. There's a form of intellectualism where even our own intellect becomes worshipped and is given glory as if it didn't come from the Lord. As if it, you know, everything we have comes from God, so it's sort of ridiculous that we get prideful about things that came from God to begin with. But I've seen it happen, and, and even to some extent, I, I, I was engaged in that when I was an attorney. I, I, I just believed, I worshipped intellectualism. You know what I mean? And, and academia, and that just becomes its own idol. All those areas of kind of thinking and seeking after experts can become idols. And what God wants is for us to seek His wisdom and His counsel in everything. He wants us to seek His wisdom and His counsel in everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Starting in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolish. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom. Human wisdom does not lead to a knowledge of God. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. <laughs> but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. 
And what God's trying to show us through this is that all the intellectuals, all the great thinkers and philosophers of the world, all of that amounts to nothing compared to the wisdom of God found in the cross. And the reason that God hid it in something that's so ridiculous and impossible to believe from a human standpoint, I mean, to be honest with you, it's just like mythology as far as I'm concerned from a just plain sight standpoint. What what do you mean? God came to earth as a man and hung on a cross for our sins so that we could be in relationship with God and live forever? I mean, happily ever after, we might as well add. I mean, really. From a natural standpoint, it's a fairy tale. Unless you have a revelation from God. But when the Spirit of the Lord comes and opens your heart and establishes in you and you come face to face with the living God... And he tells you that it's real. It moves from fairy tale to ultimate reality instantly. And it's not because you were good looking or you went to college and got a four year degree or you're super smart and you just figured it out yourself or you found God because it's impossible to do it. And he did it that way so that anybody who has received a revelation of Christ owes it not to their brains and not to their wisdom and not to their self-sufficiency, but to God's revelation alone. That's why he hid it in the foolishness of the cross. So that it's only in brokenness and humility that you will ever know God. Go, go a couple chapters later to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 18, chapter 3. The word of the Lord says, stop deceiving yourselves. Stop deceiving yourselves. Again, he's speaking to Christians in Corinth. Christians! Christians! Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you are wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. Hello? The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they are worthless. (laughs) The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they are worthless. It begins to get you to a place where you start to understand why He wants us to come to Him for revelation. Why He wants us to come to Him for direction. What is He trying, what is he trying to teach us through this, brothers? What is He trying to teach us through these realities that He's sharing? It's to be dependent on Him for direction and counsel in every area of our lives. Why? Why do we need to be dependent on Him? He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Now, does that sound like you're going to get to his thoughts and his ways by your own understanding? Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. This is what the Word of the Lord says. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense 
that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world. Okay. Are we seeing this? They come from human thinking and the spiritual powers of this world. Who are they? Who are the spiritual powers of this world? Satan and his demons. Demonic. Demonic sources of thinking. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. What is he saying with that? He's saying, don't listen to all these, everybody else in all their counsel and all their human thinking. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Go to Christ to get your answers. Go to Christ to get your answers. Everything, the fullness of God is found in Christ. And Christ, through the Holy Spirit that's living in us, will provide us with what Christ's counsel is, the scriptures tell us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm just going to read this to you guys. You, you, um, if you want, you can go to James chapter 1. That's where we're going to go next. And so, dear brothers and sisters, this is Romans chapter 12. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind you will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't. Co- this, is, this is what you guys need to hear right here. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Is everybody clear about what he's saying here? Don't do what the world is doing. Don't do what the world is doing. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. How many know that the way we think is messed up before we know God? It's messed up. And so we need to change the way that we're thinking. If we, if we come to the Lord and keep on thinking the way we've been thinking, we're not going to see the kingdom of God. God's going to come and rewire our brains because they're not working right. They're not working right when He finds us. And so there's going to be some changes that take place. That's what He means when He says, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God wants to change even the way we think about things so that we see things the way He does and not the way we have been. Hallelujah. James chapter 1. This is what He says, and this is just the final exhortation to you. If you need wisdom, go to the Lord. If you need to know what to do, go to the Lord. If you don't get it the first time, ask again. Keep on asking, and He'll give it to you. He promises that. And I know it to be true. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask Him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty, you recognize that from other scriptures that we've read tonight? Divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is being blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So if your faith is partially in the world and partially in God, don't expect anything from God. But if you've resolved yourself that you're going to go to God for everything that you need, He'll be there. He'll give you what you need and more. 
Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Keeping one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world will get you ripped in half. Because they're going in different directions, brothers. The world and the kingdom of God are going in two totally different directions. And you see, it all comes back to the gospel. It's an all or nothing gospel. It's an everything or nothing gospel. You're either all in or, you know, don't do it. Now, we have the great assurance of knowing that it's God working in us and through us that gets us there. It's not our own human effort, thankfully. We're going to go on to area four. Okay, so the other area that you should have a yellow flag going up for you in discerning where there's worldliness is where do you see around you worldly thinking or things that look like the world? Where in our churches is there worldly thinking being employed rather than kingdom thinking? Hopefully you'll be able to identify those more readily now. The fourth area that should cause us our discernment to go off about worldliness is seeking entertainment and comfort. Where there is seeking entertainment and comfort, you're looking at worldliness. Okay? The world offers counterfeit happiness and peace. It does offer happiness and peace through something called entertainment. Entertainment represents a way to suspend the consequences of sin. A lot of times, entertainment is supposed to be the, the half solution to our sin. We sin and we get ourselves in problems and we get a bunch of consequences and burdens in our life and then we go to entertainment to try and unplug and forget about all the consequences of our sin. Do you see how this works together? It's supposed to be the counterfeit solution to all the consequences of us living in disobedience to God. So we live in disobedience to God and we get all this anxiety and worry and burden and hurt and brokenness in our lives and we start looking at ourselves in the mirror going, wow, I'm not very happy and we get despair and hopelessness and we have nowhere to go and so we turn on cable. Wow, desperate housewives, man. And for an hour, you get to forget about how bad it really is in your own life. And if you want three hours, there's three hours of programming. And if you want to just stay plugged into the matrix and never think about the reality of how horrible you feel inside because you're not reconciled to God, the world system will gladly accommodate you and provide 24-7 entertainment, video games. Bye-bye. See in a couple hours or a couple days or a couple weeks, or a couple years later, when you've gotten to level 20 million. You got to level 20 million, that'll be a great conversation on that day before the Lord. Lord, I got to level 20 million on XYZ video game. I wonder how that'll last in the fire. That'll probably burn real quick. I'm talking to myself, man. I mean, I spent hundreds of hours playing video games, watching movies, watching television, and it's all going to burn. None of it amounts to anything. Except it was an opportunity for me to unplug from the matrix by plugging back into the matrix. These activities are designed to engage our attention and keep us from looking at or listening to the Lord. That's what they're designed to do. To keep us from looking at or listening to God. The enemy is perfectly happy with us being entertained for all of our lives. 
and then it's done. And it's over. We didn't accomplish anything for the kingdom of God. Entertainment also breeds a culture of apathy and idleness, which are problems that we have in our culture, wouldn't you say? Apathy and idleness. We've got a lot of entertainment, but we also have a lot of apathy and idleness. That inhibits our, It also inhibits our ability to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The more you spend time in front of the TV, I'm just telling you, the more your, your, your ability to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit has decreased. Watch TV for a while and then figure out if you're in God's presence afterwards. Yeah. And again, everybody's got to make their own decision and let the Holy Spirit convict them about what He's saying to them. You know, everybody has got to come to that place. This is not legalism. You know, we're just, I'm just telling you the reality of what TV is and what it's designed to do. It wasn't designed for godly purposes. Uh, the Lord turns everything around for His glory somehow. The fifth area, the fifth area that should cause us to, that should cause us to have discernment that there's worldliness going on around us or permeating things that are happening around us is busyness. Busyness. Busyness is a major strategy of the enemy in the world system to keep us from spending time with God. And here's here's the question to you. Do worldly concerns ever keep you from doing the things God is calling you to? Do worldly concerns keep you from doing the things God's calling you to? Go to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. This is what the Word of the Lord says. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what He taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. It's a picture of how busyness will pull us away from focusing on God. So busyness is another indication that there's worldliness operating. If you're finding yourself so busy that you can't spend time with God, or so busy that you can't do something else that the Holy Spirit's asking you to do, it's a good indication that worldliness is involved. Worldliness is very much our enemy and we want to be on guard against it. That doesn't mean, you know, the Scriptures tell us that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. It doesn't mean we run away and we start hiding from the world. It just means we have to be aware that we're in the world, and that we need to be resisting those places where the world wants to contaminate us with its thinking. Instead, we want to be the virus that's bringing the kingdom of God and the love of God into the world, and infecting the world with the holiness of God. Because that ultimately, brothers, is God's plan. Is from the inside out, He's turning this world into a consecrated place, a temple for His presence for all time. And it's going to happen through the salt and the light that we are. We are the salt of the earth. We are being sprinkled throughout the world strategically to flavor the world until one day we're going to hit the flashpoint and the fire of the Holy Spirit is going to cover the earth. It will cover the earth. And in a blink of an eye, it'll be the kingdom of God everywhere you look. In the blink of an eye, it's going to happen that fast. That fast. 